0: As you uh, make your way back to Philippians this morning, Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 17, I want to uh, just remind you and encourage you to, if you've not yet given a gift to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for the support of the work of our Southern Baptist Convention North American Mission Board, I want to encourage you to consider giving a gift. We have seen videos every Sunday this month, and we saw our last one, on uh, this Sunday, and I hope you heard uh, in the pre-roll during our preparation for worship today that that one-third, you think about this, one-third of the churches affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention did not exist in the year 2003. One-third of our churches have been started by the North American Mission Board since 2004. Now there's a reason for that and the reason is bad news and that is we have thousands of our churches that are closing uh, almost every month. And we're not even beginning to keep up with the pace of the churches that are closing with the planting of new churches and the revitalization of some of those churches that are closing. And you heard the video this morning about the work going on in Washington, D.C. and beyond by a group affiliated with the North American Mission Board called Pillar Network that is planting churches near military bases all over our country. And these churches are churches where the Bible is taken seriously and churches are doing what they do by the Bible, and that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference, and these churches are growing, they're strong, they're faithful uh, to the Word of God and to the work of the gospel. So I would encourage you to be a part of supporting that work and strengthening that work through uh, your gift as you're led to give it to uh, the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering you're able to stand, we're beginning in verse 17 of chapter 3 this morning and reading through chapter 4, verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, and continuing through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power of that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and I long for, you are my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're not all that we desire to be. It is self-evident for any of us who belong to any church, anywhere, anytime, that we are not perfect. The church has, from her beginning, been made up of imperfect people seeking to please a perfect Lord. We are sinners who are being saved by your grace even now. We need your mercy in moment after moment of our lives. And God, we do not say that to you this morning in confession in order to excuse our sin, to assume that conflict in the church at any time, in any place is just a way of life for your people, we are confessing that we are sinners and when there is confusion and conflict in the church, it is never from you. It is always from our enemy who delights in entering a church and invading the hearts of professing Christians and by his power causing havoc that comes from hell. And we thank you, Lord, for words like these from Paul writing to the church in Philippi very openly about the kind of conflict that had come to this church. And before addressing that conflict, showing us very clearly what the real issue is. So show us, Lord, through your word and by your Holy Spirit, what the real issue for any church is, whether we're in a time of peace or a time of pain, where we whether we're at a place of quiet or a place of turbulence, and every church everywhere will be at both places along the way. What we most need is to see and to know, to understand and to comprehend what is always the issue and never will cease to be the issue. So teach us, Lord, by your Spirit and call us in humility before you today as your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's interesting to me that the church in Philippi is still in her first generation. Uh, You expect confusion and conflict in almost any church, in every church, when you move from one generation to the next generation. But here we are in the early days of the church, and this church in Philippi is torn apart. There's confusion in this church. There's chaos in this church, and it is very real. And it threatens the fellowship of this church. It surely threatens the integrity of the witness of this church, the outside world. And Philippi is looking in, and they're seeing what is going on, and they're laughing, and they should be laughing. They're not just laughing at the people in the church. They're mocking the God whom this church says they worship and adore. This is a very sad situation that is so serious that Paul is going to address it very clearly, very carefully, very completely, to the point of calling names. There was a time in the early history of Baptist churches in the South that when there was conflict and confusion in the church, the pastor might stand in the pulpit and call names. Brian, I heard what you've been saying to Doug. I heard it. Somebody told me, stop it. There are days as a pastor I would love to return to that time. But it works both ways because then people in the pew can say to the pastor, Al, I heard what you said and I heard what you did. Stop it. This is serious business the church is dealing with, and Paul is going to speak clearly about this situation. And what he's about to do seems, it seems a bit crass, a bit callous until we understand what is at issue here. And what I want to do this morning is take us to Philippians chapter 3 verse 17 through chapter 4 verse 1 before Paul addresses the issue or addresses the situation so that we can see what the issue is. And I want to be clear about the issue. The issue is this. It's not the unity of the church. The unity of the church is disturbed because they're confused about a more basic and fundamental issue. This is the issue. What do we mean as believers when we say Jesus is Lord? That's the issue. Uh, The issue is the absolute, non-negotiable lordship of Jesus over the life of every member of every church and over what a church is and what a church does. You've heard me say this many times before. Uh, Those of us in this church who would say this is our church have missed the issue of the lordship of Jesus this is not our church. This is his church. And our goal in this church is not to do what pleases us, what we feel is best for ourselves, what most benefits us. We're under the authority of the word of God. And our goal is to honor God through serving and surrendering our lives to Jesus and obeying his word. The church is not my church. There's something that happens inside me when I hear a pastor say, this is my church, and these people are my staff. No, they're not. This is not my church, and this is not my staff. I don't own them. They don't work for me. They don't work for you. They work for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and their desire is to please Him, to honor Him, and to magnify Him. This is the issue in the church in Philippi. Because if we are confused about this issue, we're not clear about this issue, we're not committed to this issue, then there's going to be no unity in the church. Jesus was clear when he prayed for unity in the church that the issue really was his lordship. Turn back with me to John chapter 17. You will see this when Jesus was praying for unity in the last prayer as far as we know that he prayed before he went to the cross and the tomb and then was brought forth on that glorious day in John chapter 17 verse 11. Jesus prays, I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy father, keep them. The word keep means to guard them, to govern them, to guide them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one that unity is, is under the sovereign power of God and the saving authority of Jesus that is in us through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Look down at chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, that is the disciples, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now he's talking about us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. My presence, my power, my purpose is in them. Why? That they may be one. Even as we are one, one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. We think in many places and through many circumstances that the issue in the church is unity. So we've got to come up with some program to produce unity. We've got to find some activity in which we can be involved that will produce unity. We've got to have a fellowship complete with lots of food just to get people together so we can have unity. That is not at all what the Bible means by unity because unity cannot be produced by any human. It comes from God through his spirit among those who have surrendered and keep surrendering their lives to Jesus as Lord. It's a personal unity. It emerges out of our love for and loyalty to Jesus. It's a purposeful unity. It comes out of our desire to honor God by obeying Jesus. It is a unity that ultimately is not about us. It's not from us. It's not even for us. It's for the glory of God in Jesus Christ so that the world can look into the church and say, wow. Those people love Jesus. Those people set aside all kinds of differences. Uh, They set aside all kinds of debates. Because all they care about is Jesus being Lord. That's what had gone wrong in Philippi. That is what goes wrong in any church that is struggling with the issue of unity. Because underneath all of that is one simple, central, core reality. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is Lord? Philippians 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1 is a commentary on Jesus' prayer, I believe. He's showing us how to get to that kind of unity. And let me just say right here that when churches think that unity in the church is some ideal and it can never be reached, we're thinking wrongly because we're saying the Bible is simply a book of ideals. It isn't. The Bible is a very practical book. The issue is not with what the Bible teaches or with what Jesus prays. The issue is with professing Christians where we are so compromised with the world and so consumed with ourselves that what we want really at the end of the day is for the church to look like us and think like us and behave like us and be like us. And when we're thinking that way, we cannot be under the lordship of Jesus. So Paul Paul in this passage does three things I want us to see them he gives us a pattern to follow he gives us a perversion to forsake and he gives us a promise to be received and believed that is a promise upon which we base our lives first of all he gives us a pattern to follow Chapter 3, verse 17, brothers, sisters, join in imitating me. Does that sound bold to you? It's not the first time Paul says this. He says this often. It sounds almost brazen. I don't know what would happen if I stood in this pulpit and said, hey, hey, y'all, follow me look to me, imitate me. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about what he just wrote. This is what he wants them to imitate. This is what we should all want to imitate. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. This is the context. This is what Paul is saying. Paul says, Verse 9 of chapter 3, I want to be found in him. That is, I want to be consumed by Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I don't want my own way. I don't want the kind of relationship with God that's based on what I did. I want what God has done in Jesus to consume me and control me and to grow me and to change me because it's through faith in Christ, seeking to be faithful to Christ. It comes from God and it depends on faith. Chapter 3, verse Ten, what does it look like, Paul? This is what it looks like. That I may know him. Intellectually, know him. Doctrinally, know him. Theologically, know him. But know him in the level of the heart to grow in intimacy with him. To know him as the air that I breathe to wake up in the morning with thoughts of Jesus on my mind, to know him, to know the power of his resurrection. And if I'm going to know the power of his resurrection, I've got to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being like him in his death. I've got to die to this world, die to my flesh, die to my desires, so that I can experience the pulsating power of his resurrection in me. But then he comes to verse 12. We read verses 9 and 10 and go, wow. But then we read verse 12 and we say, yes, yes. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, mature, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider... That I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting the past, I don't think about that. I strain forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what, that's what Paul means. This is what it means for any Christian. This is not for super people like Paul because Paul was just an ordinary guy. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the simple essence of being a Christian. I want to be consumed by Jesus and I'm not there and I will not get there until I die, but I want to press on. Imitate me. Paul said, and not only imitate me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Well, who are these? Well, he's told us in this letter. Read the letter and you'll see Timothy. Timothy was shy, withdrawn, unsure of himself, but he was called of God to preach. And he was leading a church, teaching the truth of God and doing it boldly and Paul said, look at Timothy. He says in Philippians, I'm going to send Timothy to you because I have no one, no one like him who is as sincere in his commitment to Jesus as he is. Epaphroditus. Lost a history except for the Bible. A man who went to Philippi, or went to Rome on behalf of the church in Philippi and almost died Barnabas, always encouraging, always helpful. Titus, who was sent to Crete, in order to bring the church there in order, they had gotten out of order. Paul sent him with orders about how to bring the church back into right biblical order. Paul says to this church in Philippi, know where my life is, I'm... Under the lordship of Jesus, seeking to obey him, but I have not arrived, but I have around me people who are good examples for you. Look at them. Can I ask you this morning who those people are in your life? If you had a note card right now, I could write down three names of people that you look to every week. They're examples to you. You you want to be like them because you see in them the kind of growth and maturity that's helpful to you. Can I ask you also this morning are any of you Lone Rangers? You're trying to do this on your own? You don't have anybody outside your immediate family to whom you're looking? We can't do this on our own. Sin will get us and compromise with the world will come. We all need people to whom we're looking that can help us. We have a pattern. And that pattern is set before us in Jesus as Lord and in the lives of those around us that are brothers and sisters in Christ Who are seeking to be faithful to Jesus. Secondly, there's a perversion to forsake. Verse 18: For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Who are these people? Paul tells us something of them in the next verse. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Paul has already warned us about these people at the beginning of chapter three. He calls them dogs. These people are sneaky like dogs. Now, they are seductive, evil doers. Who, who present a false gospel, but it sounds good. They are those who mutilate the flesh. They present themselves as holy, and what they teach is holy, but it destroys people's souls and sets them on the same course that they're on, which is not a course to bring glory and honor of God to God. Now look at verse 18 with me because you know what I, this is what I want Paul to say. Do you ever read the Bible and argue with whoever the writer is and say, I wished you had said this. I don't like what you said here. This is what Paul says. Begins verse 18, for, for what? Many. Paul, let's change that to few. Where are these many? They're not in the marketplace. They're not in the public square. Where are they? They're in the church in Philippi. Many. We better know who they are. We better know what they're about. Many. Paul said, I've been warning you about this. I've been teaching you about this. But nothing's changed. They haven't repented. They haven't changed. Their ways are set. They are after what they want, whatever it costs them to get it. I'm not angry with them. My heart's broken. I'm weeping because they are undermining the work of the gospel in and through the church. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. They profess loudly to be followers of Jesus. They're not friends of Jesus. They're enemies. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul does here something intriguing. He begins with the outcome and goes back to the source. The outcome is destruction. That means they're going to hell. They're under the judgment of God and don't know it. The wrath of God is on them and they don't know it. And I've warned them and warned them and warned them and no repentance. So where does it begin? Where does this kind of thinking, acting, living, teaching, where does it begin? Paul says it begins with minds set on earthly things. Child of God, Satan has ordered this world where this is all he wants from you. This is all. He wants you to compromise with the ways of the world so as to reduce the level of your commitment to Jesus as Lord. All he wants is a little compromise. That's all he's after because he knows something. Once he gets you chasing the desires of your flesh and the ways of the world, he's got you. And you will keep moving away and moving away and moving away. And if your profession that Jesus is Lord is true, you will be filled with guilt and remorse, so much so that God's Spirit will grab you and snatch you back in repentance. But if you are not a child of God, you're one who just professes to be, there will be little guilt, a little remorse. You'll keep chasing the world and the desires of your flesh, while standing in the church and singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Paul's already told these people in Philippi, have this mind among yourselves which is in Christ Jesus. This is your mind. It came to you when you gave your life to Jesus, the mind of Jesus being in you. Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Ken Hughes says that you and I live in a culture where increasingly the pursuit of creature comforts displaces in our hearts and in our lives the passionate pursuit of Jesus and his cross. Who doesn't want to have fun? Who doesn't want to enjoy pleasure? Who doesn't want to do as we desire to do? God has ordered a world where there's so much to enjoy and so much in which we engage But when do you get to that place when you become so engaged with the pursuit of pleasure and the chasing after things you want to do that you compromise your commitment to Jesus as Lord and what you're after becomes more important to you than surrendering what you're after so you can serve him more fully and more effectively? That's where it begins. It begins with our minds, our thoughts, our desires on earthly things. Because our God is our belly. That doesn't mean that these people are fat. They may have been. Because the image here is of someone who's so focused on themselves that they never look outwardly, so focused on themselves. They're they're looking at their navel, and they're after what they want, and they never look up and see the needs and concerns and hurts and anguishes of people because they never look up. And see the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God. So that the conclusion is, He is everything. I am nothing. We begin to take joy in the things of the world that should cause us to be ashamed. Paul says, if you can live like that without repentance, if you can live that without, like that without guilt, if you can live without, like that without any sense of knowing that you're going down a wrong path, the end is, the end is destruction. This is a clear warning. Paul intends it to be a clear warning because in the end here, he wants to establish a contrast. He wants to tell us who a true Christian is. The issue is the lordship of Jesus. Who is under the lordship of Jesus? He tells us. He gives us a promise that we can not only believe but receive and base our lives on. He says to the believer, he says to you and me, child of God, our citizenship is Where? In heaven. Do you know the moment you gave your life to Jesus, and I pray every person in this room has heard the good news of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son into the world to live the life that we cannot live, to accomplish all the requirements that God sets for every human being. And having accomplished those requirements, he was able, the only person in history, able to offer himself to God as a sacrifice for our sins to take our place. So that when God calls us to him through the gospel, we hear the gospel, and something happens in us, something stirs in us, God is calling us to come to him and surrender our lives to him. And when we surrender our lives to him, God declares us to be right with Him forever. He puts His Holy Spirit in us and He secures for us a place in heaven for all eternity. For all eternity. If you're a child of God, your home is in heaven. You are a temporary visitor here on earth. You have one mission. And that is to bring glory to God through being a part of his church, engaging in the worship of God, and through that church to be a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus, to bring other people to Jesus as followers of Jesus. That's your mission. We're waiting. We are working. We are witnessing. We're waiting. We await a Savior. This Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he comes... On that last day when he comes, he's going to transform everybody, every body that belongs to him and everybody's body to be like his glorious body. And all things, all things in heaven and on earth will be subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will rule and reign forever with his people upon the new heaven and the new earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we're not compromising with this world. We're not accommodating our lives to this world. We're going to live as God's people. We're going to live distinctively different as God's people. We're going to live With devotion to Jesus as Lord, which becomes the light, which becomes the aroma. You know what attracts sinners to believers? It's not that you are like them. We think that we've got to be like them. No, what attracts them is you are so wonderfully different. Because our present, our past is gone. We don't live there in any way. Our present is, our future is secure. And in this present moment, every day of our lives, we have one purpose, and that is to bring praise to God by living as faithfully as possible under the Lordship of Jesus. And when we come together as a church, what we want does not matter. What matters is that the outside world can look inside and say, wow, those people love Jesus. He is really Lord. I've told this story here before. Maybe that's why I'm retiring. I'm running out of stories. I'll never run out of text. I've got 66 books and lots of verses. Teddy Roosevelt with his wife had been on a trip overseas. and those days, they went by ship. He had been gone for a couple of months. He came back into the harbor. On that same ship was a missionary and his wife. They had been gone serving in a tough place for about seven years. They had not been back home. But it was time for them to come home. And as they arrived in the harbor, there were bands playing, there were banners waving. There were big crowds to greet the president, who had just been gone for a month or so. The missionary looked at his wife and said, this is so sad that the president, just gone for a short time, has bands and banners and big crowds. He's coming home. He has lots of people. We're coming home. We have nobody. His wife looked at him and said, We're not home yet. We're not home yet. Why? Why would you answer this question for me? Why would any believer? care anything at all about anything this world has to offer. This isn't our home, but we're going home. I wake up some mornings with songs in my head. I woke up two weeks ago with a song in my head that's been stuck. So every morning I wake up singing this song in my head. What a day that will be when my Jesus, I shall see just a look upon his face, the one who saved me. By His grace. When He takes me by the hand and leads me through the Promised Land, what a day, glorious day that will be. Father, Help us to receive, to believe, and to base our lives on the lordship of Jesus, knowing that even now he rules from heaven as sovereign ruler of all things. And our desire individually as believers and corporately as a church is to please him by obeying him. So day by day, help us to kill our sin and help us to put to death our desires so we can live for him, love him, and long for that glorious day. In his name, amen. Amen.